This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, overcoming our culture's war on the American family. Written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician, Dr. Ben Carson. Available now, everywhere you get audiobooks. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. I had a listener ask me the other day, what about uh, the various uh, controversies that can come up from time to time about whether or not the gospel has anything to do with social justice? And my response to that is, first of all, to say there really aren't any controversies out there about whether or not uh, the gospel has anything to do with social justice, because I challenge you to find anyone who actually in practice would deny that the gospel does not have implications for social justice. As a matter of fact, uh, many of the people who say uh, that the gospel doesn't have implications or that social justice is a distraction from the gospel are also the people who are arguing just the opposite all the time when they're talking about whatever issues they're interested in. And and often I agree with them on on those issues. So uh, abortion, uh, no one's going to say, uh, let's not talk about uh, abortion or the gospel doesn't have implications for the systemic problem of abortion. Some of them will talk about gambling and the systemic issues that come along with gambling, and and rightly so. So it's not that there's really a controversy about whether or not the gospel has implications for social justice. It's usually that what social justice means in that context has to do with black and brown people. And that's really where the issues ultimately land, is on questions of, of race. And I've, I've seen that uh, close up. Uh, I've had people say, well, uh, we want to uh, work together on, a, on something having to do with, uh, with dignity of human life, sanctity of human life, and we want to talk about abortion, we want to talk about euthanasia, we want to talk about adoption and orphan care, but we don't want to talk anything to do with race. And my answer would come back and say, well, why not? Well, we think it's a distraction. And I'll say, well, do you think euthanasia is a distraction? Do you think that questions of uh, disability are a distraction that you don't have a problem with? Well, no. And eventually what comes out is, yeah, but we have donors, we have people around us that would get upset if we started talking about race. Okay. Well, that's not a question of whether or not you think the gospel has anything to do with justice. That's something else. Uh, The other problem is because the words uh, social justice have become easily politicized in the same way that, for instance, the words uh, family values uh, were politicized in the other direction. So there there was a time when uh, if someone were to say to, say, a progressive, are you for family values, the response would be no. 
I mean, even though if you if you step back and say, now, wait a minute, you're, you're really not for what you consider to be uh, parents taking care of their children. No, because I, what I hear when I hear family values, that progressive would say, is the other tribe. And so I don't even want to talk about those things using that language. Well, the same thing has often happened with language of social justice. You will have people who will say, well, when I hear social justice, um, I think about people who are trying to do uh, all kinds of other things that I don't agree with. So that language, therefore, is theirs. No, that language isn't theirs because in, in so many other ways, there's all sorts of language that we cannot abandon and we cannot give up. We need to reclaim. Justice, particularly. And social is just a modifier telling you that you're, you're talking about not just what we do individually in personal morality, but what we do together uh, as, as a society. Justice is a biblical word that is repeated and defined over and over and over and over again. So when we talk about these issues of how does the gospel interact with justice— I think the real issue here is a controversy that went on really heatedly in the 1980s, but preceded that by many, many years and continues to be with us, and that's the controversy over lordship salvation. And I was, I was talking about this the other day in a, in a lecture that I gave at uh, Southeastern Seminary. When I was a youth minister, one of the the really illuminating uh, moments uh, that I had was when I was uh, teaching a Wednesday night Bible study, stood up, I was presenting the gospel. This young woman came up to talk to me. We'll call her Jennifer for right now. Uh, Jennifer came up to me afterward and said, I want to be baptized. And I said, okay, uh, well, tell me why you want to be baptized. Because she said it just kind of nonchalantly. And so I thought, there must be something going on here. I said, why do you want to be baptized? And she said, well, I was, I was uh, christened when I was a baby in a Catholic church, and then uh, I was rechristened again in some other kind of church a couple years later, and then I was uh, baptized as a four-year-old in a Pentecostal church, and then when I was 10 years old, I was baptized in a Mormon church and Jehovah's Witness church, whatever, all of these different places— And she said, you know, the way that I look at it, no one really knows which of these religions is is right for sure. So I just want to make sure that when I die, if there's a God, that I've got everything covered. So the way she was looking at it was, I want to make sure I have my passport stamped by as many authorities as I can so that whichever one God will receive will get me into heaven. And I said, well, that's not what baptism is in my view. And so let me talk to you about the gospel. And so as I'm talking about repentance of sin and and faith in Jesus Christ, about the crucifixion of Jesus for sinners, his resurrection from the dead, his lordship over us, she stopped me and said, no, let me tell you what I'm looking for. So she she was almost in this situation where she was kind of bargaining uh, with, uh, with someone as though someone were trying to sell her something. She said, no, let me tell you the deal I'm looking for. The deal I'm looking for is I want to be able to get drunk occasionally because I'm young. I want to be able to get drunk. I want to smoke a little weed uh, occasionally, not all the time, but every once in a while. She said, I want to have sex with my boyfriend, uh, and I want to go to heaven. That's the deal I'm looking for. And my response was to say, well, that's the deal that everybody is looking for in their, in their fallen flesh. 
let us sin all the more that grace may abound, as the Apostle Paul says. But that's not what the gospel does. What the gospel does is to come in and say, follow Jesus Christ. And and to follow Jesus Christ means that you come under his lordship. You come under his lordship as a sinner. You come under his lordship as somebody who's repenting of sin, not one time, but repenting of sin continuously through this, this earthly life. But the gospel simply does not allow you to continue unchanged in sin in terms of your personal morality. What I said to her was, let's do this. I want you to read through the Gospel of John, and I'm going to give you some some materials as you're doing that, and then my wife Maria and I uh, and you will meet together, and we'll we'll talk about it, and we'll move forward. and And I want you to pray and ask the Lord to to show you Himself as we're going through this process. Well, she came back a week later and said, "Oh, uh, no need to do that." because she said that she had run into um, a pastor of another church who was willing simply to baptize her on those terms. Well, that's not New Testament Christianity. So when we're, when we're dealing with these questions of justice, really what we're, what we're dealing with is a combination of those same instincts toward no lordship salvation, along with the same instincts toward a kind of market-driven Christianity that says, highlight the things that are attractive to whatever your audience is and minimize those things that are unattractive to your audience. Now, uh, some of the, the irony here is that sometimes uh, the very people or groups who claim to be the most hostile to no lordship salvation and to market-driven Christianity can sometimes fall right into the exact same thing. And what's really at root? Well, whether it is the person who is saying, hey, uh, I don't want to talk about or I want to redefine Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, uh, because I, I don't want the, the gospel to interrogate my sexual behavior. So that's a distraction. Let's not talk about our sexual behavior. Let's talk about the gospel, who we are in Jesus. Well, you'll also have people say, let's not talk about racism and bigotry and, uh, and, and the way that we can prop that up in our churches or in our activities in society, let's, that's a distraction. I don't want to talk about that. And the, the same people who will say, well, if you just preach the gospel, then the way that people conduct themselves sexually will just naturally work itself out. Well, if it does, then the New Testament spends a lot of time uh, speaking to Christians about what it means to live obediently to Christ. And if we just see that people are saved, then these regenerate hearts are just going to naturally uh, move toward justice. Again, if that's the case, then I don't know what the Bible is doing in the prophets or in James, speaking to the people of God about what it means to, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And again, in our context, almost every time, and one of the most discouraging things uh, that I've ever seen uh, in now 25 years of ministry is the way that when you come to the question of what is our responsibility as the people of God to be a reconciled body that bears with us the hurts 
of black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ. The response to that often is exactly the same thing that we have seen over and over and over again. The arguments don't change. So the the arguments that were given in the 1850s to say, well, we don't want to talk about social issues like human slavery. Let's instead focus on the gospel. Or in the 1920s, let's, let's not get political and talk about lynching. Let's instead talk about the gospel. The 1960s, let's not talk about, this is just social experimentation to talk about Jim Crow and uh, the, the segregated South. We need to not be distracted upon, uh, over that and instead focus on preaching the gospel. And a lot of the people who are for uh, integration and racial justice are communists. Therefore, if you are involved with this, you are somehow imbibing Marxism. Uh, the, the arguments, they stay exactly the same. And you would think that we would be able to look back and say, wait a minute, where is this coming from? But ultimately, it really comes down to to two questions, and two questions that the Scripture speaks to repeatedly in the Old and New Testaments. And those questions are, who is my neighbor? What is the gospel? So if you think of, uh, for instance, Jesus in his uh, interaction with uh, the lawyer, the one trained in the Old Testament scriptures in Luke uh, chapter 10, that question of who is my neighbor uh, comes up. And why does it come up? It comes up because the lawyer is trying to protect his conscience. Uh, he, he, He wants to be able, the scripture says, to justify himself. Now, that's something that... Really, the lawyer ought to be able to see where Jesus is going with this if he has an awareness of the Old Testament scriptures. So you you think of, for instance, uh, the account of Elijah interacting with Ahab over the vineyard of of Naboth uh, in the in the book of First Kings. If you don't remember who Naboth uh, was, he had a vineyard, and Ahab wanted to take that and to sort of with, with eminent domain, increases his palace in order to build a vegetable garden there. That's not unusual. Nobody at the time would have been surprised that a ruler would be taking property from someone who was a peasant, someone who was of no account in terms of, of power uh, in the day. And if, if anything, Ahab seems to be doing something that is kind of generous because he's going to pay him for the vineyard. But Naboth says, I'm not going to give away the inheritance of my fathers. So the the system of power is there. The king matters. The peasant doesn't. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing when he talks about the priest and the Levite walking by to the other side of the road when they pass the man who's beaten on the side of the road. Exactly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about uh, the rich man who is ignoring Lazarus, who is there uh, outside of his palace being, being licked by dogs. It's exactly the same thing that the scripture is talking about when it talks about uh, in the Proverbs, don't move a landmark of your neighbor or what the Old Testament is talking about when it says, make sure that you do not oppress the widows and the fatherless. Why? Because their redeemer is strong. He hears them. He, God pays attention to 
those who are seen to be simply invisible. Their concerns are not my concerns. They're not my people. They're not of my tribe. I don't have to worry about them. That's why James comes in and says to the the churches of the dispersion in James chapter 5, you are not paying adequately the hired people who are working in your fields, and God hears them. And James talks about in really, really strong terms about that. Well, that goes on and on and on throughout the entire, uh, the entire Scripture, and God is paying attention to it. So much so that in the case of Naboth, one, one small farmer brings down an entire dynasty. Question is, who is my neighbor? That's why Jesus comes in and intentionally turns this around. He gets up and he preaches good news, Luke chapter 4, for the poor and for the blind and for the oppressed. He, He announces the favorable year of the Lord, and the people who are there in his hometown synagogue are commending him, and they're rejoicing. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, wait a minute, you don't understand what I'm talking about. He points back to Elijah and to Elisha about the fact that God did not send Elijah to the people of Israel. He sent him outside of the tribe to the widow of Zarephath, sent Elisha outside of the tribe to Naaman the Syrian. Who is my neighbor is consistently the question. And so when we're thinking about Uh, our responsibilities as Christians to say it is a distraction is to ignore what the New Testament says to us, which is to say, if we say to one in need, go and be warmed and filled, uh, we are not obeying the word of the Lord. So part of our responsibility as people who are the, uh, the, the people of God is to say, who matters? In God's economy. And who matters in God's economy are all of those that have been created in his image, whether or not the herd that we're riding with thinks that they're valuable or not. That means the unborn matter. That means orphans matter. That means women who are being sexually abused matter. They matter before God. And What's happening in the Naboth uh, passage, and happens repeatedly elsewhere in the Scripture, is that you have a system that is being used unjustly. Naboth uses power to try to take away this man's vineyard and ultimately to take away his life. Now, here's why this is a justice issue. This is not just a morality issue, although it is that. It's a, it's a justice issue as well, because there's a mechanism whereby a ruler can take property, and he does. There's a mechanism whereby the government can put someone to death, and what Jezebel does is she brings witnesses forward. They are worthless people, uh, the Scripture says, in order to testify wrongly against Naboth and to put him to death. This is an act. Uh, that is social. It's the social structure working together, and it's an act of injustice. And it's an act of injustice that the Bible speaks to repeatedly. Think of the Proverbs. Sometimes people 
I think that the Proverbs are just sort of uh, self-help nuggets uh, for people to get by in, in life. The Proverbs are, are, are telling us about things in our personal lives and our personal integrity, also in terms of how we act in whatever our public responsibilities are. So the one who, the Scripture says, justifies the wicked in a court system to say, you're guilty, but you're free or the one who convicts the righteous. You're innocent, but we're going to convict you, are alike an abomination in the eyes of God. That is an act of injustice. Now, one of the problems is that sometimes uh, you will have Christians who want to come in and to somehow put this division between morality defined as personal morality only, from justice defined as public justice only. And so you'll have some Christians who will say, uh, or, or some professing Christians, who will say, don't talk to me about, uh, about my sexual behavior. Don't talk to me about that. Uh, that's not what matters. What matters is our responsibility to the poor. And then you have some Christians who will say, don't talk to me about racial justice. Don't talk to me about uh, inequities that are taking place in the, in the social sphere that I'm participating in. Uh, talk to me instead only about personal morality. The Scripture doesn't do that. Why? Because they're not two separate things. They're both manifestations of human sin and idolatry, and they're rooted I mean. What, what's the problem here? Jezebel is given over to idolatry, and what does she do? She uses then uh, the structures and the systems that are at work along with Ahab in order to do those things that are unjust, and God calls them out. That's why the prophets are able to, in the same, sometimes the same sentence, Isaiah and Amos and Micah to, to come in and talk about things that you might classify as social and the things that you might classify as personal, the things that you might classify as righteousness and the things that you might uh, classify as justice. So those there are, there are those of you who, Scripture says, go in father and son and uh, sexually prey upon the same young woman and who sell the poor for the price of, of shoes. There are those who bow down and worship false gods and those who uh, grind the face of the poor into the ground. These aren't, these aren't separate things. And the, the question is often, uh, where do you have a point of responsibility? Well, we have that with, with personal morality as well as we have it with questions of, of, uh, of what we do together uh, socially. Uh, if you are discipling a Christian who's a 10-year-old little girl, uh, you probably don't confront that 10-year-old with sexual immorality. Probably no sexual immorality going on. You probably prepare her for the sorts of temptations that she's going to face uh, later on. But in most cases, there, there's there's going to be no need for confrontation there. This this is someone who's a sinner, 
you know, has other things that need to be confronted, but that's not one of them. The same thing is true uh, when it comes to things that we might consider to be social or things that we might consider to be so-called justice issues. Scripture says that sin, Romans chapter 1, those things that we do and those things that we heartily approve of, those things that we justify. So when, for instance, Pontius Pilate, on the basis of trumped-up charges and trumped-up witnesses, sentences Jesus of Nazareth innocent to death, is he responsible? Yes. He cannot say, I'm just doing my job. I'm the governor. I have to, this, this is not a personal issue. This is a social issue. No, you have a responsibility as somebody who is carrying out uh, a vocation in the social arena. Therefore, that is your problem here. That's why John the Baptist, uh, when he's uh, receiving those repentant tax collectors and those repentant soldiers, and they say, what do we do now? Uh, He says, you carry out your public responsibilities without extorting people, without defrauding people. Well, that's not something that you necessarily have to say to somebody who is enslaved at that time, who has no power or responsibility over other people at all. In the same way, when we are discipling people, uh, one of the things that we're talking about are those things that they have some responsibility over. And in a North American context, in which most people are citizens, they have a certain degree of ruling authority over other people. And when they're part of a uh, they're part of a community or they're part of a family or they're part of a, a tribe or a village, they have a certain amount of responsibility there as well. So if you're William Carey and you're in India and you're dealing with the question of whether or not uh, widows should be burned upon the funeral pyres of their husbands, then you have a responsibility to say, both to the consciences of the people doing this, this is wrong, this is unjust before God, and you should repent of this. You also have a responsibility to disciple Christians to say, you cannot applaud this. You cannot support this. You cannot say that this doesn't matter. Even if you Christians have absolutely no power to do anything about it in your context, the question is, what does your support or silence for this awful activity do to you? And what may be even probably the most horrific thing in the Naboth passage is the way that Jezebel uses God. She says, she has the the witnesses say that Naboth cursed God and the king. So he was in violation of the law. He was in violation of the Torah, of the word of God. She's doing that. She's using God to carry out an act of social injustice, a public injustice. Well, that is something that certainly does not end with Jezebel. That's exactly what slaveholders did is to stand up and say God approves of kidnapping slaves from Africa and enslaving them as chattel slavery because of, and they were quoting passages of Scripture that do not support that, but why? In order to have the imprimatur of God upon their acts of sin and injustice.
People were doing that uh, during segregation to be able to say, well, uh, you know, uh, Acts 17 says that God has appointed the boundaries of our habitation, and so that means that God wants us to be kept uh, separate. Blasphemous. People do it now and say, well, uh, unborn children uh, shouldn't, uh, shouldn't matter because the, the life is in the breath, and until they are breathing, then they don't matter. They're using God in order to accomplish what is sin. And what the outside world is able to see in all of these things is to say, you don't really believe what you say you believe. Instead, you want to prop up immorality, or you're afraid of people who want to prop up immorality, and so you're willing to sacrifice other people because they don't matter. What what difference does it make what happens over in the court of the Gentiles? We, We want to make sure that we maintain the sacrificial system here in the temple. Jesus says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples, whether you think they matter or whether you think they don't matter. And then secondly, there's the question of uh, the gospel. What is the gospel? Elijah, in that Naboth passage, comes forward and speaks the word of God and speaks a word of judgment. Ahab has a certain degree of repentance, and so his, his judgment is, is suspended uh, for a little while, but, but his dynasty is over with. In the same way that Jesus, when he's talking to that, uh, that lawyer, that the question is whether or not I am justified before God, and Jesus is coming in here and exposing the ways that he is, in fact, sinning against God. Now, there are people who would say, well, this is a distraction from the gospel, and there are people who will say, well, anytime that you're talking about implications for, for righteousness in, in our social activities, then somehow you're involved in a social gospel. But when you hear that, you understand that people don't even know what the social gospel is. What the social gospel was is to come in and say, let's not talk about individual regeneration, that a person must be born again. Let's instead talk about reclaiming the structures, and we don't have to worry about the the depravity and sin nature of people because once the structures are in place, the environment will automatically bring people up from from those structures. So it's exactly the same thing. That will happen uh, anytime that you hear, or, or often when you hear people say, oh, well, that's legalism. Is there legalism? Absolutely. The New Testament spends a lot of time taking legalism apart, but you will have often people who in the arena of personal morality uh, don't want obedience to Christ, who any time that any of the imperatives of Scripture are given will say, well, that's legalism. We we don't want to talk about that because that's going to distract us from the gospel. So when you come in and say, husbands, love your wives, well, don't, don't talk. I, I'm, not a, I'm not an unloving husband. I'm in Christ, and my righteousness is in Christ. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Well, I'm not neglecting or I'm not a person who neglects or abuses my children, even though I do, because that's not me. My righteousness is in Christ. Flee sexual immorality. 
well, I know I'm sleeping with all these people, but I'm not sexually immoral because that's just my body. I am in Christ, and that's who I am, and don't distract me with legalism. That's not legalism. It is the call to ongoing repentance and obedience. And the reason this is so significantly important is because the Scripture is dealing repeatedly with issues of sin and the question of accountability on Judgment Day. Slaveholders stand before God on Judgment Day. The sexually immoral stand before God on Judgment Day. People who are applauding the grinding of the faces of people into the ground because they're poor or because they're black or because they're migrants or because they're unborn or because they're fill-in-the-blank, answer for that at judgment. And you can't simply say, well, that's not me. That's just, that, that was just my public life any more than you can say, hey, I'm personally very, very moral. I stay very, very faithful to my wife. What I do owning this strip club or what I do owning this uh, pornography site, is that's simply about my job. That's my, that's my vocational life. Don't, it's a distraction for you to talk to me about vocational righteousness when instead you ought to just be talking to me about the gospel. Nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. I'm going to break this up into two parts, so we'll come back uh, next time to talk about uh, that question of what is the gospel and how that relates uh, to social injustice. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.